Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. The first brand is a young girl that had an impact on you. I would say the earliest brand I think about, although it's you know still relevant today, is probably American Express, who I used to work for. What fascinated me about American Express is what the the function they perform is as uninteresting as it gets, right? It's just the way you pay for something. And it really doesn't matter if you swipe a Visa card, a MasterCard, and American Express. But they created the the concept of badge value, which is, you know, so core to marketing. And Peloton definitely has that badge value. You know, people want to wear the Peloton sweatshirt to drop their kids at school. And I always felt like if a credit card, again, something that really does shouldn't matter that much to people, could could um, elicit that loyalty, then, you know, that is the power of brands. And so that's something that I've always kind of taken. American Express is something that I've always kind of taken with me as an as an example. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO Podcast is Carolyn Tish Blodgett, the former head of global marketing for the red-hot fitness brand Peloton, and now strategic advisor for Peloton. For the past four years, Carolyn has led the marketing efforts for this Kickstarter project that grew into a household name, and the pandemic has further fueled Peloton's growth. It closed out its recent quarter with top-line growth a whopping 172% above a year ago. Carolyn was on the senior team that took eight-year-old Peloton public last September with a current market cap of an astounding $27 billion. She has degrees from Yale and Harvard. She's worked on the agency side. She's worked for PepsiCo and even a brief stint at the New York Giants. And if that is not enough, she had her third child in August. This is my conversation with Carolyn Tish Blodgett. Welcome, Carolyn, to the CMO Podcast. Thank you for joining us. You're such an interesting brand. And we are recording this on a beautiful fall day in the Northeast. So I have to ask you, have you worked out yet today? Yes, I am so glad I did. Phew. I have worked out today. I went on my Peloton bike. I can only do 30 minutes, but sometimes that's all you have before you're recording a podcast. Um, so I did. It was lovely. That's why I'm still a little sweaty. At least it's only audio here. What Which instructor did you uh, participate with today? I took Robin Arzon, and I went for an old classic. I felt like I needed a pick-me-up, get-me-in-the-right-mood, so I did The Greatest Showman Ride, which I've done so many times, but it's so good. Well, Robin is a family favorite in our household, so we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay, great. So Mine too. tell me about 
you, you know, you know more about exercise regimes than most people in this world. What has really shifted during COVID? What kind of habits and changes, non-obvious ones perhaps? Right. So I think obviously, you know, I, I worked at Peloton for four years. I was there pre-COVID for, you know, most of my time there was pre-COVID. And so we saw something at Peloton. I saw something at Peloton from the early days that this was going to uh, represent a fundamental shift in the way that people approached exercise. For the last, you know, for for many decades, it was about home fitness, but no one actually really used it, right? You would buy your your Nordic track or, um, you know, some spin bike in your basement, but you never used it. And then boutique fitness came around and that was incredibly motivating. And people realized, oh my God, I could get this. I have this instructor. She's right in front of me. She's coaching me and it's great, but it was really inconvenient. You know, you had to book on Monday at 12 o'clock and it was really expensive. It was $39 a class in most places. Um, And it didn't really work for most people. But so where what what was unique about Peloton and what I saw at, at in those early days was you could actually get the best of both of those worlds together. So you could have the convenience of home, but with the motivation of an instructor. And that was a trend that had already started pre-COVID. But obviously, when COVID start, when COVID happened and people were all of a sudden at home, that sped that trend up. So this was something that was starting, but people realized, wait a second, why was I commuting to the gym every morning? Why was I working out for 20 minutes instead of an hour because I had to wait, get make sure that I could get in the shower line before the rest of the people? Why was I sweating next to all these other people? You know, things you never really thought about before. Yeah. Um, so I think that is a trend that is definitely, um, you know, it was starting before, but COVID has amplified it. And within exercise, are people doing spinning more? Are they doing yoga more, floor exercises more, more relaxation things? Have you noticed any shift within kind of protocols? Yeah, so I think that's a, um, that's a good question. I, I think what people are realizing is that they want a little bit of everything. So, uh, you know, for their people used to have their kind of set routine of I'm a runner, I'm a spinner. I think now people are realizing that a little bit of, of everything can really round out a holistic experience. So for a while, I think in the kind of the dark days of March, when people didn't know what was happening, there was a more of a shift towards yoga and meditation. Um, now I think people are also looking, you know, they're sitting on Zoom calls all day and they they, they need cardio too. So, um, so you see people more kind of having a balance of everything. Yeah. So I want to disclose up front, I've already mentioned this, my family is full of Peloton fanatics. And, but I have not and they can't wait to hear our podcast, by the way. But I have not yet jumped into the community. Hmm. So, and I, I think I will. But I have my own things I've been doing, and it's very diverse, and I like it. But I want you to share with me, when you're talking to friends like me, who have not made the jump, but you think would really enjoy it, what do you say to them? What do you share with them? People that haven't bought a Peloton bike or tread, or people that haven't really experienced the social aspect of it? I think the former who haven't really bought, haven't joined the community, haven't really, you know, got, I mean, my, I have so many nephews, nieces, daughters, sons that, who are yet all over it. And so, but I have not yet made the jump. So tell me what you share with people when they haven't made the jump. Yeah. So I think in the early days, I was really 
more just kind of explaining what the product was. Nobody knew what this product, this product didn't exist before. So it just explaining that you can get this instructor-led fitness class at home. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I think people get that. They understand the concept of working out at home. Um, what I what I then will shift to is more of trying to understand what their barriers are. So I think for some people, it is about the price. And so I, you know, will take out a piece of paper and do the math for them of, wait a second, you're paying either $39 a cl- per class or you're paying $100 for your gym, start to do the math of I use my bike or tread. I, I use my Peloton membership 30 days out of the month easily. My husband and I share and I, you know, we both, it's one account per household. So split that in half and all of a sudden we're paying, you know, a couple cents or a couple dollars for per workout. So financially, this is a fantastic investment. So that's kind of one group of people. The other group of people, I think in the past, have said, well, I'm not a spinner, so this isn't for me. And then I would point to the wealth of, I think Pel- you know, Peloton a few years ago was associated with spinning. We had a bike. But all of a sudden, there is so much content. Peloton Bar was released a few days ago. Um, I did yoga throughout my entire pregnancy. I now, um, I have a six-week-old baby, so I spend a lot of time in the middle of the night trying to fall back asleep. So I'll do the meditation on my phone in the middle of the night. So there, there's, my sister had a baby a few months ago, and she just started running for the first time in her life, and she's doing the outdoor run classes. So there's so little, I spend so much time using my Peloton um, app or in whatever uh, subscription in whatever form, but so little of that time is actually spent on the bike. There's so much more to it than that. So I would say those are the two kind of camps yeah. that I would focus on. My son and daughter-in-law were on back order on the bike for many months. They live in Detroit and uh, they had the app and they just loved the app. So when the bike came, it was a nice enhancement, but they were already really into it. And just, exactly. just love the app. And I think that's been such a shift is people, you know, associate Peloton, of course, because we I built a brand so much around the bike, but now that has shifted to there's so much more than that, than just the bike. So you just shared a little bit about your life. You're getting up in the middle of the night with a new baby. So I want to talk a little bit more about your life. So you've been all in with Peloton for four amazing years, and you've you've stepped back recently to be an advisor. And there are a few women who've come in in your place, and we'll talk about them in a moment. But was that tough, being all in, being so much about this brand, being such the face of this brand in many ways, and to move into advisor? Has this been a tough adjustment for you? Yeah. um, Yes. Uh, How should I answer this? It it has. Um, The decision to walk away from something you love is really hard. And I made, it was not a light decision. I would say it was probably the hardest decision I've made in my career. Um, But when I thought about what I did for the last four years, you know, when you talk about balance, um, what someone had given me this advice in business school that you probably can't have perfect balance every day, but think of your life in chapters. And in there's going to be chapters where you are committed to work and there's going to be chapters where you're committed to home. And as long as those chapters kind of balance each other out over time, then you will kind of achieve that balance you're looking for. And that's how I've thought about my career. And for the last four years, it was Peloton. And yes, I did everything I could to be at my kids, you know, school pick up when I could and drop off. But um, 
I missed a lot. And Peloton, I was the first marketing hire. There was no one I couldn't delegate for a lot of the last four years. There was no one to delegate to. You know, I talked about my assistant before. She didn't exist six months ago. This wasn't, you know, all of a sudden I had someone I could speak to about my calendar. Um, So Peloton was my entire life for four years. And I don't regret a single day of it. It, I, I, um, you know, when I think about I made the decision to walk away right around when the when we um, did our IPO because I felt like what a tremendous accomplishment and journey going from this you know little known startup where I would tell my friends from business school I was working at Peloton and they'd say like oh you mean SoulCycle I said no Peloton <laughs> and you know yeah. no one had, and they're like Flywheel I was like no no Peloton. Um, and to go from a company that no one had ever heard of to take it public, it, it took everything in me. And when I thought about, but then, then I thought about this next four years and what was the next four years of Peloton going to look like? And it was going to be just as challenging. It was just going to be a different challenge. And I couldn't imagine my daughter was, you know, going to be five soon. And I thought about, okay, she's going to be nine and, how am I going to feel looking back at those last four years? And I felt like it was the right time for me personally to then walk away. Yeah. So you, two, two women are coming in to succeed you. So you have Dara, who's taking over global marketing and communications, and she has experience at Carbon and GE and Apple. She's an outside hire. Then you also have Karina Coogan, who's head of global product marketing. So, and so what, tell me about, you know, you've been so all into this. You've, you've stepped aside to be an advisor. These two very talented women are coming in to do this work. What have you told them? How have you onboarded them? What advice did you give them so they could benefit from the amazing stamp you have put on this brand? Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm proudest of in, in looking back at my team, at looking back at my work at Peloton was the team that I left behind. Um, so much of my time at Peloton was building out my team. And again, there was no, there was no model for it. It was, it was me. And then I think the first person I hired was, I actually didn't even hire. There was a young woman who was hired to be someone's assistant. She had just graduated from college um, like two weeks before. And I looked at her and said, oh my God, you can't be someone's assistant. You have so much talent in you. Like I'm going to hire you and you're going to be part of my team and you're going to help build out the Peloton marketing team. But there was no, there was no playbook for that. So I had to figure out, you know, do we want a consumer insights team? Do we want a strategy team? Do we want an an internal creative team? What is that going to look like versus an agency? So building out, so, so much of my time was spent building out that team that I feel really good that I have left these two, you know, fantastic women in charge now with this really strong team that has all of that knowledge. You know, I, I think because I had the fortune of, giving Peloton and myself a really long runway of when I resigned to when I actually left, I spent the last few months just kind of taking everything that was in my brain and dumping that into my team. So I talked to my team all the time. I spoke to um, someone on my team last week. And I, when I listen to how they're talking about Peloton, like they have that brand in their DNA, like I do too. So I feel like I'm leaving it in really good hands for them. Now, you're already talking about this amazing brand story, which, you know, as you know, is one of the great brand stories of all time. I just want to recap a little bit about this brand. And I think you're probably the hottest brand we've had on the podcast to date. And we've been recording for a year and a half every week. 
So just uh, a few facts. You know, since you joined Peloton in 2016, your compound annual growth rates above 200%, your brand awareness single digits to 70% plus, your memberships above 3.1 million, you've upped your game with innovation, and you took the pub- company public about a year ago and the stock price is 4x quadruple since then. So, wow, <laughs> well done. You know, so f- few people get to build a marketing function from scratch, and let alone with a very, very hot brand, which you didn't know back then. So as you look at this function you've built from nothing, you know, would, and, and so many people come into CMO jobs and they inherited an enormous legacy and a history, and sometimes that's hard to shift and change. So you've built one from nothing. What are the lessons in that? I mean, what, what decisions did you make that you thought were brilliant now that you look back on them and maybe some that were not so brilliant now that you have, you know, a pretty well-run marketing function? Yeah, um, good question. I think mark org structure is one of the greatest challenging challenges of a CMO role. I think a lot of people want to come in and they want to do the next advertisement or they want to... Um, you know, change the brand positioning because that sounds like fun. But building a successful org structure, I think is, again, it's one of the most challenging parts of a CMO role, but also one of the most important. I think one of the areas that I really invested in um, from the beginning that, that has really paid off was consumer insights. And it was clear to me from the early days that if this company was going to be as successful as the founders wanted it to be and I wanted it to be, we needed to deeply understand our consumer. And that was, some, you know, I think in the early days, the founders were the consumer and that's how most startups, you know, begin. But there needed, so as soon as I got there, I said, we need to shift how we're thinking about that consumer. And the the early days might have been you four, but it's to get to the billion dollar status that you want to get to, it's not going to be you four much longer. So really deeply understanding our consumer, really investing in consumer insights was a fantastic, um, was something that really, you know, has paid off for us. And it's still, I would say, you know, one of the highlights of that marketing team. Um an area that I think we struggled with and probably still do, they probably still do struggle with, um, was figuring out exactly what creative should be done in-house versus with an agency. So in the early days, again, because I had so little support, I relied really heavily on our, I hired an agent, a creative agency mechanism and they were so much more than just my creative agency because I had no, I needed a thought partner. I needed someone that I could bounce ideas off of because it was just me. So they became really kind of like my right hand team. Um, and in a way that I think if you have a, if you have the resources to have a big team below you, maybe you don't rely on your agency as much. But as, as the team has grown and as, as there are more resources, we've also built out an internal creative team. So I think one of the challenges um, was always figuring out how much should be done. It, what, what, what are the best types of things to be done by an internal team versus an external team? And I think still something that the team is kind of working through. Mm-hmm. When you look back at the evolution of marketing at Peloton in the last four years, what would you say, you said consumer insights is a real strength. So beyond that, what would you say is the special sauce? What are you really, really good at? And which capabilities do you think the next team is going to be working on to make you even better at? I think we are, I think I would say this is beyond marketing, but 
we are as a company, the Peloton as a company is great at engaging uh, their members. So that means once you become a member, as you talked about many of the people in your family, they didn't even have the bike yet and they were already hooked. So there is so much fantastic content. The software is better than any software I've ever seen in a product. There are so many people at Peloton that are focused on delighting you from the customer service is fantastic. The delivery people are you just like you're so excited when the delivery people come. They are so great. The retail experiences, you know, you leave a retail store just glowing. So there's so much about the member experience at Peloton that is, again, it's it's some of that's marketing. Some of that is um many most of it is many other teams but that entire experience is so great that you just can't help but want to in you can't help but want to tell all your friends about it right so there's this you probably have heard this but you know as soon as somebody you know uh gets a peloton bike or a peloton tread or the app they can't wait to tell all their friends about it so that is that kind of organic word of mouth referral is um, it's happening naturally anyway. And again, it, I, I would say it's because of, there are so many people focused on making that experience so great. One of the things that I think the, the marketing team has an opportunity to do is really harness that. So that's happening kind of organically already, but you can imagine a world in which, you know, the last few years we had to focus, we had to invest so much in um, paid media and just awareness driving. You talked about the awareness numbers before because nobody knew that Peloton existed. So we, I had to spend so much of my time thinking about that kind of top of funnel awareness because nobody knew it existed. Now that we're in this area where we have real, it's the highest awareness in the category. People know Peloton exists. It's more about shifting them deeper into the funnel. That's an opportunity, I think, for the team to really harness the power of the Peloton community, the power of that word of mouth that's happening already, and really use that to get the business to the next level. You've talked a couple of times about not having a playbook for all this and sort of making it up and trying things as you went. You have done what so few brands do. You know, you've become a ritual, a daily habit for many people. And so many brands aspire to be that, and so few do. And so, and that's almost, you know, having advocates and becoming a ritual or a habit are two characteristics of the most amazing brands in the world. So any insights on how you have done that? Of course, your members are very engaged. You have incredible instructors. But if you had to write the playbook for building a brand to become a ritual or a daily habit, what would be some of the things in that playbook? Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, you talked about the power of the instructors, the power of the content. That is so much of it. I mean, how much you, sounds like your family loves Robin maybe as much as I do, but I want to wake up and spend my morning with Robin. That is, that becomes a part of my day. I want to, when I'm trying to fall asleep in the middle of the night, find a meditation with Aditi because she calms me down. And so having mm -hmm. the instructors really kind of break the fourth wall and be a part of your lives is so much of it. And, um, you know, that's the individual instructors, that's the content. Because think about now when, when Peloton first started, you had your 45 minute class you spent with Robin and then that's it. But now you can speak to her on, on social media. We'll do, um, we'll, you know, do a Facebook live with our instructors. There's so much more access you can have to Peloton that it really can be more a part of your day. 
So I think that's a big part of it. I think there's also so much in the app. So think about, you know, as I was saying before, you used to maybe you loved Peloton and that meant that you did a a ride two days a week, right? You were really, you loved Peloton. So two days a week, you spent 45 minutes with Peloton. Now you might spend seven days a week because one day you're going to do bar, one day you're going to do yoga, another day you're going to go for a run outside. So having that breadth of content to be able to really meet consumers and our members where they are and and with what they need has been kind of a, a really big uh, transforming part of that. And then I would say the last part is probably the community itself. I think so often I hear from people that said, you know, I bought the bike because I wanted, uh, um, you know, an easy way to, a convenient way to work out at home because I didn't want to go to the gym anymore. My gym's closed now with COVID. And I kind of stumbled into this magical community. And that is the story for so many people. And I think that's what keeps people coming back too, because all of a sudden I'm riding with, I, I um, did a ride the other day. I, I don't even think I was supposed to start working out yet, but I started, I did a ride, you know, um, in the middle of the day the other day and a former someone I used to work with joined the ride and then she high-fived me and she texted me after and she was like, congratulations, you're back, you know, working out post baby. I was so excited to ride with you. And having that motivation and being able to do that kind of spontaneously take a class together while she's in Connecticut, I'm in New York, was really motivating. And, and that role of the community is a really big part of that. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website. And then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So now, uh, tell me the biggest change in you as a leader versus coming in here four years ago. How is Carolyn different as a leader? So I would say when I started, I probably wanted to do everything myself. I didn't really have a choice. At first, I just had to do everything myself. But I also wanted to do everything myself. And I was probably pretty controlling and and more of a perfectionist than, uh, well, my husband would definitely tell you that that's still true. But, you know, I wanted everything the way that I wanted it. And that meant I was creating the slides or, you know, I was writing the brief or I was editing something, writing something myself. Um, and I think I, I was kind of forced into as my team grew and as the work grew that I couldn't be doing everything myself. And I realized that, so I was kind of forced into letting go and letting my team really own their work more. But I also realized that that's actually what I like. That's actually the type of leadership style that, that I feel most comfortable in and that my team really loved. So I always, you know, by the end, there was nothing I loved more than my team sending the email to John, you know, our founder, 
and CEO and William, our president, I never wanted to be the one speaking in meetings. I wanted my team to be the one speaking in meetings. And I really wanted my team to feel like, I know they're doing the work. It's not me. So I want them to feel that ownership and to really um, be able to represent it. And I think that I probably stumbled into that leadership style. It, you know, I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time reading any leader. I've probably read zero leadership books because I didn't really have time to do that. But so I kind of stumbled into it. But I think it not only did it make me love leading my team because I was so proud to see the work they did, but it made them really want to be on my team because they got to, I would say, you know, most people on my team were very young, um, to be in the roles they were in, but very ambitious. And they wanted to have a seat at the table and they wanted to be the one saying, you know, I was the one that prepared for this commercial for six months. So of course I should make the final say on, you know, some scene that we're shooting. And I think they really, it made them all want to work harder and um, be a part of it because they got to really represent their work and to really kind of have a final decision. And I think so often leaders kind of, take that part for granted. And you really, I think you get so much out of the people that work for you when you let them really be leaders of their own careers and their own work. So I would say that's kind of where I ended my my time at Peloton. That's a great story. Now, you said you didn't have too much time to read leadership books and, and things like that along the journey. Who was a mentor that really stands out for you in this last four years? to help you in what you have done to build a marketing discipline, build an amazing brand? So the person I probably spoke to the most, although I definitely I didn't have a lot of time to speak to my mentors either, um, was actually someone that had been on your podcast as well, Greg Lyons, who he was, he's the chief marketing officer at Pepsi. And he was my um, boss when I worked on Mountain Dew at, at Pepsi. And he was the, I think there's no one smarter. There's no one better at kind of the, the fundamentals of marketing than Greg. So I obviously, I learned a ton from him. Um, he also had really high expectations for the people that worked for him. So, you know, I remember my early days just being, we had a Monday morning meeting where we would review all the numbers from the week before. And I would just, would like study that piece of paper. Like any question you're going to ask me, I'm going to be ready to answer. And I was always he had some question that I couldn't answer. And, you know, I'd go back and study it all over again and try better the next week. But so he had really high expectations, but he also had tremendous respect for the people that worked for him. And I think that was, you know, as I was saying before, I think that was so much of what I took away is the people that work for you, there's no one that matters more than the people that work for you. And respecting them and is the way that you're going to not only, you know, that's how you're going to get the best out of them. And the other kind of part that I think I really took away from Greg was the ability to also put my family first. And when I resigned, uh, I resigned after my daughter was born seven weeks early um, and spent a month in the NICU. And I didn't go back to Pepsi after she was born. And he, I was terrified to tell him. And he didn't, you know, didn't blink an eye. And he completely understood, not only completely understood, he wanted me to make that decision because he knew while he was losing someone, um, you know, a great employee, I was doing the right thing for me personally. And I spoke to him. He was one of the first people I told when I just made the decision to leave Peloton. And I remember texting him and I think he just wrote back, great, good for you. And, you know, I think he's someone that has obviously had tremendous success in his career, but has also um, been really an advocate for also focusing on your family. 
um, and, you know, and, and done it at the highest level. His podcast of all the ones I've recorded is one of my favorites. It's just so full of stories, lessons, humanity, love, family. It's all there. It's all there. Yes, I've listened to your podcast yeah. with Greg. It was very good. So tell me, um, Greg is a leader who focuses on purpose and culture. You're a leader that focus on, focuses on purpose and culture. Peloton has an incredible purpose. I just want you to talk a little bit about that purpose at, or mission at Peloton and maybe most importantly, how you've kept that front and center as you've grown so amazingly and taken on more people. I mean, you're now almost at 2,000 people. You have all these instructors, these members. So how have you kept that purpose, which I'm sure was pure, you know, four years ago and simple because you were all in the same room. How have you kept that so strong and growing and evolving as you've scaled, as you've diversified? Yeah, I think that is so critical to the success of Peloton is continuing to remember what that purpose is. And so, you know, again, I go back to those early days and the the purpose wasn't the purpose of getting you to be able to have a great studio led fitness workout at home was was clear. But the but what I think wasn't quite there yet and, and I still and was kind of fundamental to the early days of what I worked on and is still such a part of Peloton is what that actually means for you. So what does it mean to get a great workout to start your day? What it means for our members is that you show up better in the rest of your life. So you are better. So there was not a doubt in my mind that I was going to work out this morning before I did this podcast because I was up all night. I'm exhausted, but I know that I'm going to be more present if um, in my work today mm -hmm. if I work out first. I know that I'm going to be more patient with my kids if I exercise in the morning and so and with Peloton. So being able to kind of crystallize that purpose was so important. And so that that's kind of like the core of what Pe the Peloton brand stands for. What I think to your question on, you know, how do you keep that going? It has to be in the DNA of, first of all, it has to be authentic and people need to really believe in that. Every person you hire needs to believe in that. But it also has to kind of just be a part of everything that you do. So if you ask, you know, again, our field ops people that are delivering the bikes and the treads into people's homes, they also believe in that mission. And so it can't just be, you know, put it up on the walls everywhere. That's great. But people have to really believe in it. And not everyone, I my guess is not every one of the 2000 people at Peloton could articulate the mission the way that we wrote it four years ago. But every person at Peloton can tell you their version of it and they truly believe in it and hiring. So I think, you know, the answer to the to the question of how do you keep it going is I think it mostly comes down to hiring because every person has to truly believe in that mission. Otherwise, it just starts to fade. Do you build it into KPIs? I mean, I don't know how you do KPIs at Peloton, but is the yeah. purpose somehow in your measurement? It was, it was for our team. I don't, I can't speak for every other team if it was in theirs, but I would say again, kind of back to that everyone will articulate it differently. It probably was in their own form. So for example, NPS is something that um, Peloton 
deeply cares about. So having a really, having a high NPS score really matters. Well, so how are you going to get a really high NPS store score? You're going to delight your customers and your members every way that you can. And by doing that, and the way to do that is to get people using the product. So if it all kind of funnels back to getting people to continue to use the product day in and day out is going to enable people to show up to be the best version of themselves, which is kind of that core mission. And it's also going to get you to those core KPIs. So it kind of helps if your goals are aligned to what the mission is, it does, it does end up, it's a long answer to yes, it's part of the KPIs. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not a, are you delivering on the, on this mission? Yes. It's kind of built in, in, in its own way. Yeah. Now you talked about Greg being an important mentor for you at Pepsi and now at Peloton. I know you mentor a lot of young people at Peloton, new hires, and I'd like you to just talk about what sorts of things do you talk about with these mentees? What's on their mind? What are they wrestling with as they're trying to find their way in a hot company and with their career and with their life? Yeah, mentorship is something that's really important to me. I think I haven't spent enough time with my mentors. So I try and mentor a lot of younger women in particular, although not just women. And I think, um, you know, one, some of the things that I really focus on is when I think back to my early days at Peloton and being one of the first um, women on the senior team is there was no one that could really advocate uh, for what I needed. And so I had to do all that advocating myself. And that's something that's really stuck with me. And so I felt privileged that I could add as part of the senior team and as the first woman there, I, I had to advocate for the needs of all these other women, right? Because no one else had a seat at the table except for me. Um, what I've then turned around and, and talked to my um, mentees about frequently is advocating for themselves because I realized that uh, I think in my earlier in my career, I felt like if I just um, continued to do a good job and put my head down and and I was going to be the first one in the office and the last one out and worked the hardest, everyone, the kind of the promotions would be handed to me, the raises would be handed to me, and everyone would realize she's so great at our job, we just want to, you know, promote her. And I realized um, multiple times that that's not true. And no one's going to advocate for your career and what you need besides for you. So I've always said to my team and I've always said to my mentees, I will never be annoyed at you asking for where you stand. I will never be annoyed at you asking for feedback or when you're getting promoted because no one else, I'm not thinking about that all day. You're thinking about that. So I, I've, um, you know, as the company has grown and it's gotten, it used, you know, there didn't used to be as many processes. Now there's a little more of a, a way that people get promoted, but I've always um, continued to push my mentees on figure out what you need and figure out how you're going to go get there because nobody's going to do that for you. Yeah. Now, a few years ago, I wrote a book about how old companies, legacy companies can find new life working with startups. You have worked at legacy organizations like Pepsi, the New York Giants. You worked on the agency side for American Express, certainly a legacy brand. So what are the lessons from this quintessential startup Peloton that you think could help big companies get better and improve? Hmm, so many. Um, I guess I would start with the prioritization point that we talked about before. I think it's in a big company, it's really easy to continue to do 
the things that you've been doing. So I felt, you know, I think people often that haven't worked at a big company think that everyone at big companies is just kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs. And that's not true. I worked incredibly hard when I was at Pepsi. But were the things that I was working on the most impactful? Maybe not. And but it was it felt really important at the time that we had to, you know, prepare our five year strategy plan and we had to fill out all these documents to launch a new product. And but if you step back and say, like, what is that really doing for my business? I'm not sure you would say that that would be the best place to spend your time. So I think the lesson from Peloton, especially in the early days, is that there wasn't time for process. There wasn't time for building out, you know, a lot of like following things because that's what you were supposed to do. It was just, you know, we have 100,000 bikes that we need to sell. How are we going to go sell them? And just being so clear on kind of strip everything else away and strip away the briefs and strip away the annual operating plans and the, and the strat plans and all of that. And eventually, you know, you might need those, but really just sit there and say, this company's not going to exist in three months if we don't sell X number of bikes. What is the best way we're going to go do that? And just being crystal clear on that, um, I think, is kind of the lesson that I would give to bigger companies. I think sometimes, again, it's not that anyone's not working hard or that anyone's not um, you know, passionate about what they're doing. It's just it's really easy to get kind of stuck in doing things the way that you've been doing it and not step back and say, is this really the thing that's going to um, to change my business trajectory? Sure. Now, if I ask you the same question about what lessons other entrepreneurs who would love to be a Peloton could learn from Peloton, would your answer be any different? Um, slightly. So I would I would give that advice. I would, but I would also give another piece of advice because I often, I so often hear people, you know, people will ask me, how do I become the next Peloton? How do I build a community like Peloton did? And, you know, let's follow the Peloton playbook. And I would say is the Peloton playbook is the Peloton playbook. It's not someone else's playbook. And what worked for us might not necessarily work for someone else. I think you have to kind of put your blinders on. I think one of the benefits of being at a as company that's growing as fast as Peloton is you're almost forced into having your blinders on because you can't spend time looking at what other companies are doing. You have to just every day wake up and say, what is the thing that's going to get me to that next milestone? What is the thing that's going to sell the next number of bikes? What is the thing that's going to get me to better understand who my consumer is and just stay laser focused on who your target is, who your consumer is and what your goal is and ignore everything else? Um, and I think that's what worked for us. Again, I think I benefited from not having a ton of time to spend looking at other what other people have done and just put my head down and did what was right for Peloton. And that's the advice I would give because, again, I, I hear it so often and I think they're probably too busy trying to be the next Peloton and not spending enough time figuring out who their consumer is and what problem they're solving for their consumer. Yeah, and that lesson is so clear in Peloton's history, and it's such a, I, I just want to punctuate that, Carolyn, that is just such a profound lesson. <laughs> Who are you trying to delight, and what are you offering that is different, unique, that will change their life? I mean, I find so many startups cannot answer that question in a powerful way. And you, you got that early on. You got that early on from your, the personal experience of the people who started the company. 
Right. I th- no, I think so many startups are focused. It used to be five years ago, it was, I want to be the Warby Parker of XYZ, or I want to be the Netflix of XYZ. Now it's, I want to be the Peloton of XYZ. And, you know, stop thinking about everyone else. Just think about, again, who your target yeah. is and what problem are you solving for them? What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I want to move to the lightning round, which is a way to get to know you a bit better as a leader and as a person, although we've done a lot of that in the last 45 or 50 minutes. The first one I want to start with is you have won just about every award in branding and marketing. You have quite a list of achievements uh, and very public ones. Which of those awards, acknowledgements was the most meaningful to you? I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about those awards. Um, Probably the Brand Genius Award. Um, It was the Ad Week Brand Genius Award two years ago. Uh, and I think the reason it was is when I looked at the other people, well, I guess two things. One is when I looked at the other people and brands that were winning the awards, one of them was Burger King, one of them was Serena Williams. It felt like, wow, we've made it. And it just, it felt like this moment again, you know, now it's just sort of assumed that Peloton's the hottest brand and everyone, you know, knows who we are and everyone's talking about us. But at the time, it was, you know, all the other brands, I think it was, it was an Anheuser-Busch, I think it was Bud Light, Burger King, Serena Williams, I think that's all, and me. And I just looked across that stage, I'm like, these are brands that have built, you know, were, have been around forever, that everyone just assumes are the best in marketing, that have this massive marketing machine behind them. And there's just me standing there with my parents and my husband and um, I had brought Mechanism, our agency there too. And it just felt like this moment of like, wow, we've really made it. And this brand actually is really a part of culture now. Yeah. We've talked so much about your amazing success in your career and with Peloton. Is there a flop in your career that you learned a lot from? There were many flops along the way. You know, you talked before about the successful metrics of Peloton. There was, um, you know, a lot of mess behind those successful metrics. I would say, um, you know, well, I worked on brands that also didn't perform well. One of the first brand I worked on at Pepsi was Sierra Mist. And I literally, I sat outside of the chief marketing officer's office at the time and which is lucky that I did because it's the only way that anyone even would acknowledge Sierra Mist was like he would walk by my desk when he went to the bathroom. So it was like, oh, how's Sierra Mist doing? Because <laughs> otherwise, truly no one cared about it. Um, so that wasn't, you know, great, but I learned a lot from that. But, but, but at Peloton, I would say there were so many misses along the way. You know, I talked about the early days of doing the brand positioning, but what we didn't really talk about is four tech startup, uh, four, sorry, tech um, founders that, you know, built up, that came up through the tech industry and through products have no interest in brand strategy and consumer insights. And so there was a lot of, you know, tough conversations in the early days where I felt like they don't want me here because I'm sitting here talking about brand strategy and brand positioning. And they're like, 
okay, so did you sell three bikes today or did you sell two bikes today? And, you know, I knew the importance of doing a lot of that kind of foundational work to go build a brand, but that's not how they thought. And rightfully so. I mean, they were trying to just make sure that we could, you know, get to hit our sales numbers. So, you know, I think there were a lot of days for early days for me where I questioned, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I really the right fit at this company? Because Mm -hmm. the, the things that I'm talking about are not the things that they really care about. Yeah. So who do you think the toughest competitor for Peloton will be in five years? Hmm, good question. Um, You know, I think, again, we didn't, when I was at Peloton, we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about competition because it was just, you know, put your head down and, and do what you, what you can do to delight your members and get them riding and running and meditating every day. Cause that's how we're going to continue to be successful. So there wasn't a lot of time spent on competition, but I would say more uh, kind of in broad strokes, the way I thought about competition was as a media company, because at, you know, you talked about your, your kids loving the Peloton app before their hardware even arrived. And so for someone to come, it's like, I, yeah, I would think about the competition as you're use you're competing for people's screen time and for the, the way that they work out, not necessarily the piece of hardware. Um, obviously the Peloton hardware is, um, you know, the best in the business, but there is more to it than just the hardware. It's that combination of software and content. So I would say, you know, probably somebody focused on software and content. Yeah. Most influential person in your life. Probably my grandfather, um, who is uh, passed away um, a long time, 15 years ago, actually, at this point. Um, but he built his business uh, from scratch, him and his brother. And he had this incredible ability to, he was obviously incredibly successful at what he did. He, um, he built a, a company that went public and he built that, you know, again, they built that from nothing, but you you could not find a person that worked for him, that worked with him, that knew him, that didn't tremendously respect him. And, you know, I think about his memorial service, which had, you know, thousands of people there. And you you truly couldn't hear, you, you couldn't find somebody. There were tough conversations he had, of course, all the time, but everybody loved him and everybody respected him. And he would take meetings. One of the things I, you know, I think about a lot that he, cause I've, you know, been so ruthless about prioritizing my time, but he would, anyone that wanted to meet with him, he would meet with. And he had this little notebook that he would take out of his pocket. You know, he would sit in someone, um, one of their businesses is a hotel business. And one of the housekeeper's um, sons would come and say, you know, I would love advice on how to get, go to college. And he would, they would come to his office and they'd sit there and he'd write down, you know, to follow up with so-and-so about seeing if he could help him at NYU or at Hunter or something. And he would do it. And he, you know, he took his little notes and he would write it all down and then he'd go help them. And he always had time for everyone that worked for him, um, regardless of what level there was. He was kind of the opposite of a hierarchical leader. And, you know, I've tried to, to take a lot of his leadership style and, and, um, and represent that as well of just having tremendous respect for everyone that works with me and for me. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And we should probably end on that, but I do have one, one more question. People are always curious about what you're watching, 
what my guests are watching or reading or listening to that's inspiring them. Do you have anything right now that a series, a movie, a book, a podcast that you're finding, you know, a lot of joy in or a lot of inspiration or a lot of education, whatever it might be? Um, I was hoping you didn't ask me that question because <laughs> I, I, as my friends or family will tell you, I'm like the least um, knowledgeable person of what's happening in the world because I am really ruthless with my time. So I mostly don't watch TV mm-hmm, or sure. sadly haven't read any books recently, but <clears throat> I did just start, I've been driving my kids to school recently um, in a post COVID world. So I have a lot of time listening in the car. So I just started listening to, um, the New York times podcast, nice white parents. I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Yes. Nice yep. white parents. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I, I'm only on the second episode. I only have, you know, chunks to listen to it, but, um, I've just found it re- It has nothing to do with marketing, but I've just found it really interesting to take a hard look at what my kid, um, you know, what, role parents play in the public education system and what is seemingly, um, you know, parents are trying to advocate. They think they're trying to do the right thing for a school system and they don't realize actually how much kind of um, what the ramifications are of that and and that they're, you know, having an, potentially a negative impact on a school on a school or a school system when they don't realize mm-hmm. that they're doing it. So it's been really eye-opening for me, but, you know, unfortunately not related to marketing, but it, it has been interesting. No, it's on my list. And I, I'm going to take a walk after we're done here and listen to Kara Swisher's new podcast, Sway, about power. I love Kara Swisher. That looks interesting. That's just been released. Who would you like to hear in the CMO podcast if you have time to do that in your drives? Who would be interesting for you? I would love to hear from, I was just thinking about companies that have really had to kind of uh, pivot their business and have done so successfully over, you know, since COVID. And I was thinking about Airbnb specifically because the travel industry, you know, should be in a lot of ways as is, um, you know, it should be dead, but Airbnb isn't. And they've found a way to pivot their business. And I was just reading something because I know they're um, they're getting ready to, or I think they're getting ready to IPO soon. But I was reading something about how I think that they're, they're, I could be wrong, but I think they're, they might actually be up right now in um, in bookings. Or if they're not mm-hmm. up there, they're not down as much as they should be. And it was so fascinating to me that they could so quickly kind of speaking to what we were talking about before about businesses that can, you know, pivot quickly versus kind of yep. get stuck in their old ways. They were able to to truly transform their business overnight in a way that in a world that nobody had planned for and figure out that people are do still want to travel, but they want to travel short distances and they want unique experiences. So maybe someone mm-hmm. wants to rent like a camper instead of a house and just really fascinating um, that they were able to change their business so quickly. So I would love to hear from them and how they did that. We'll do it. We'll do it. Okay, great. I'll listen to it. Carolyn, thank you for your generosity today. It's been inspiring on many levels. So many insights behind this great brand, but also so many insights behind you as a wonderful and remarkable human being. So thank you for your generosity and openness today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That was my conversation with Carolyn Tish Blodgett. The unique thing about this episode is we will we got an inside look at how a brand went from nothing to one of the hottest brands in the world. And we got an inside look at how Carolyn built a marketing function at a company from scratch. So what would you do if you had to build a marketing discipline in a firm with no precedent, no people, and actually not a very specific idea of what you wanted this brand to be? So lessons abounded in this one. My two favorite stories in this podcast, 
the story about Greg Lyons of Pepsi being Carolyn's mentor and about her greatest inspiration in life being from her grandfather, who was a fantastic entrepreneur. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.